All right, we'll get started this morning. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into our next verse this morning. We'll, I promise we're going to pick the pace up, but uh, there's a lot to look at in these first couple verses. So let's pray, and then we'll start. God, we thank you for another day. We thank you for the rain uh, that we got, even though just a little bit. We thank you that, uh, God, you are faithful to provide rain that's needed. And so we just thank you for that. We thank you that we can uh, gather and learn more about your word, learn more about you, uh, worship together, uh, encourage one another today. And we pray that we would do just that. Uh, we lift our equip class up here to you. We pray for wisdom as we look to your word. We see just how amazing you are, how great you are uh, in creating everything. And God, we pray for our uh, children's equip classes, our teens as they're downstairs, that you would just help the uh, material they're covering to be beneficial, to challenge them, to help them learn more about you. And we lift our service up to you and here in just a little bit that you'd be with Pastor Justin, as he brings your word, and for our ministries tonight, even uh, Kids Club and Youth Group, Lord, that you would just bless those. And so, God, we lift the whole day to you. Uh, we thank you for just the joy of being able to uh, have that fellowship with one another and to set this, side, this day aside to worship you, to learn more about you. And so, God, we just lift it up to you and pray you be magnified and glorified uh, in our presence today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. All right, so last week we dove into Genesis 1, a lot to unpack there, very simple first verse, and yet we saw so many profound things just from that one verse about who God is, his attributes, how he's created everything out of nothing. We talked about really just the science of how much is there in that first verse, uh, the omnipotent creator speaking to existence, time, matter, space, all of that. And so this morning we're going to come to verse 2. And we're going to break down verse 2 in much the same way we did verse 1, one phrase at a time. Uh, we're not going to do this throughout the book of Genesis, because we would be in this for till Jesus came back, probably, or till I died, whichever happened first. And so we're going to pick up the pace after this week, but uh, I want us to see in verse 2 um, really just a proper, hopefully, interpretation of this verse. And uh, I mentioned last week, we're going to talk about uh, some different theories uh, about creation as people have tried to take uh, evolution and fit it into scripture. Where can we put this? Where can we make this fit with scripture? And so this morning we're going to talk about one of those theories uh, specifically, and then we will not meet next week because we have church at the park, but the following week we'll work through some other theories about creation as well. So this morning we're going to talk about uh, one theory, and it really is centered around uh, an interpretation of verse 2. And so that's why I want to flesh out this theory. It's called the gap theory. Anybody ever heard of the gap theory before? Okay. Um, so this viewpoint, the gap theory, let me just give you a, a, a brief understanding of what this uh, theory is. And then as we work through the text, I'll explain how they like to interpret the text to make it fit their position. But the gap theory essentially says that uh, verse 1 is God's original creation, that God created the heavens and the earth, created everything. It was perfect, and then there's a gap of time to account for the geological record, the fossil records, all that happens. And then verse 2 is actually talking about because there was sin, because Satan fell in that period of time, they see now God is recreating. So they see verse 2 as here's the state of the world after judgment because of Satan's fall, because of all this that happened, and now really the days of creation are re days of recreation. God is recreating everything, okay? 
So I'll tell you kind of as we work through the text why they have this thought process and why I believe this is not the proper interpretation of Genesis. Um, and so we'll unpack some of this as we go. Um, so again, during this gap, billions of years, this accounts for the supposed geological ages and fossil record. During this time, they believe is when Lucifer and a third of the angels fell. And so uh, they, they would view many times these days of, of recreation, as they would say, as literal 24-hour days, as this happened about six to 10,000 years ago. But they account for everything uh, as far as fossils and all that as happening before verse 2. Okay? It's also referred to as the ruin and reconstruction theory. Okay? So there's ruin and then reconstruction here. Or the pre-Adamic cataclysm theory. So they believe there's this uh, judgment and some kind of cataclysmic event, sort of like the flood that we see later in Genesis, but something happened prior to verse 2. And then verse 2 is explaining how the world was left after this cataclysmic judgment from God. Okay? Any questions? We'll walk through some of these interpretations, but any, anything you need clarified on that position before we walk through it? If you have questions throughout, just raise your hand or comments. Uh, raise your hand. So let's break this down a uh, little phrase at a time. So let me read the verse, and then we'll break it down a little bit at a time. And then I'm probably going to have you guys read some verses. I have several passages that we'll touch on uh, here in a little bit. So I'll, I'll probably, if you're willing to read some verses here in a little bit, I'll pass out some verses. So let's read this together. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay? So let's take that phrase, the earth was, and let's talk about that to start. So something interesting, you don't see this in a lot of translations, at least the few that I looked at, but verse 2, and actually every single verse in Genesis 1 other than verse 1, begins with a conjunction. Does anybody have the word and translated in that to begin the second verse? Does anyone say and the earth was without form void? What, will you read it for us? Okay. So there is a conjunction there that a lot of translations don't bring out. And you'll see it if you have the ESV, verse 3, and God said, verse 6, and God said, you know, even verse 4. And so really every single verse begins with that conjunction, which can be translated, it's the Hebrew word wa, it can be translated and or but. Okay, it can be either one. Um, now, this is where we get to the first means at which the gap theory tries to translate this differently than what we see in a lot of translations. They prefer the translation, but why do you think that is? Why would they tra- prefer, uh, but the earth was without form of void instead of and? Okay. Right. It's showing a contrast, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but the earth, and we're going to see how they translate the rest of it, but there's a change, right? God originally created, but something happened. Now, again, this is, you can translate this conjunction wall as but. However, most of the times it's going to be and. And as you look at really the context of what's happening, what you see in chapter 1 is clearly meant to be sequential chronological. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, right? Not this happened, but then this happened, but then this happened. It's 
sequential, chronological. So that's why most translations either don't have that word or, as you see throughout the text, it's usually the word and. Okay? Okay? So it seems very clear in the context this is intending to uh, lay out a sequential order of the creative acts of God in this creative week. So the word earth is the same word we see in verse 1. Eretz, just talking about dirt or land. Okay? So it's talking about our planet earth. And then the next debated word in this phrase, okay, uh, and then, or and, um, the earth, so then the next word is was. Doesn't seem like a very significant word, but this is a, another word that's very debated, especially by gap theory. So the Hebrew word is hayetha, and it means, it simply means to be, or a state of being, okay? So that's why we translate it was, the earth was, it was being this way, this is how it came to be. Whereas it can also be translated became, okay? And so gap theorists propose that it should be translated became. Why do you think that fits their theory? So, but then, or but the earth became. Right, it fits right with the but. But, so God created the heavens and the earth, but the earth became this way, right? It signifies a change that happens, okay? So again, this word can be translated as became, but 98% of the time that we find this word in the Old Testament, it's translated as was, okay? Um, so 98% of the time it's translated as was. We've talked about this, and we'll talk about this when we get into the next phrase as well. It's why I really wanted to focus on interpretation prior to coming to Genesis, but we talked about this idea of determining a word's semantic range, which means as you do a word study of a significant word in a passage, you want to study all the usages in Scripture and find out, well, what's the semantic range? What could that word mean? But then we don't just say, okay, what could it mean? And now let's, fit the, let's take the meaning that we want to do. That's what it seems like the gap theorists have done. What well, can mean became... And that fits really well with this theory, so we're going to make it that. Instead, we look at the context. How is, it, how is it used? What can it mean? And then in the context, and what is the authorial intent? Did Moses really intend to communicate that there was a change, that God created things? Well, it's not laid out that way anywhere else in Scripture. So there's a lot of presuppositions with that position. And so it seems very clear in the context. This is just simply saying the earth was in the state of being without form and void, okay? So the earth is being, the earth being without form or void is basically what it's saying. It's just acknowledging that this is the state the earth was, okay? Any changes before, or any uh, thoughts before questions before we move on? There's actually another, another Hebrew word that if Moses did want to clearly communicate a change of state that he could have used, um, and yet... It's not that word, right? It's the word that's translated as was here, okay? So we could accurately translate the first phrase, and the earth was, or like I said, even, and the earth being without form and void, okay? So let's move on to the next phrase, and this is the one that is really um, probably the key uh, to their argument, okay? So the next phrase is without form and void, Okay, what do you think of when you think of those words? Without form and void, just in English. How would you explain that? Without form and void. Well, that's some language word, 
Okay. Yeah, without form would probably signify that. We're going to talk about, really, I think it's the idea of shapelessness, formlessness, right? Um, and then what's, what's void? What do you think of with void? Empty. What are some, do some of you have a different word translated? What are your words if you have a different translation in the ESV? Without what? Formless and empty. I like that. Okay. Um, as we're going to see, really, it's, I think it's shapeless. I like that word shapeless or formless is very similar. Empty or uninhabited, right? So we'll talk about that as we flesh through. But the Hebrew word for this is tohu wabohu. So the wa is the and. So tohu wabohu, it's kind of a rhythmic way of saying it. You see these words together a couple other places in Scripture that we'll look at. And so gap theorists believe these words should be translated as ruined and desolate, okay? And again, they can have that meaning. Actually, tohu has a lot of different, uh, has a pretty large semantic range. In the King James, it's translated elsewhere as vanity, confusion, empty place, nothing. There's all kinds of different ways. So it has a pretty large semantic range of what it could mean. And so one of those could be, well, it's, it's, um, it's desolate, it's um, ruined is that idea, Okay. So gap theorists tend to lean toward that uh, translation. Bohu simply carries the idea of empty, right? And so they say desolate as if to signify, okay, it was something and then it was ruined. It became nothing. And then it was almost inhabited and became uninhabited. It was desolated, okay? So they'll not only seek to translate these words to communicate these states as a result of judgment, they will also point to other passages in the Old Testament where these words are found together together and how they're often speaking of judgment. So let me hand out some verses. I'll just go ahead and hand them out for the rest of our time together. So who would be willing to read some verses for us as we walk through this, okay? Debbie, if you'll read Jeremiah 4, 22 to 28. Jeremiah 4, 22 to 28. Okay, who else? Ryan, Isaiah 34, 8 through 12. Isaiah 34, 8 through 12. Okay, Bob? Uh, Isaiah 24.1. Okay, Isaiah 24.1, Bob. Terry, Isaiah 45.18. Isaiah 45.18. We'll keep going. Uh, Courtney, Psalm 104, 19 to 24. Psalm 104, 19 to 24. Okay, Corey, Isaiah 45.7. Isaiah 45.7. I think I've got... Uh, we'll say one more. Who would read the last one for us? Dan, Proverbs 8, 22 to 31. Proverbs 8, 22 to 31. Okay? All right, so we're first going to look at a few verses where, again, gap theorists will point to the usage of these word, these Hebrew words, tohu, wabohu, and how it is speaking of judgment in these passages. And they'll say, look, look at all these cases where these words are specifically speaking of judgment. And so verse 2 has to be speaking of God's judgment upon a pre-edemic civilization, pre-edemic creatures, world, earth, whatever you want to say, uh, because of the fall of Satan. And so then the days of creation are are more days of recreation, okay? So the, yes, prior to Adam coming, right? 
So before Adam, before the events of the days of, as they would say, recreation, they believe something, well, billions of years went by, and we just don't know what happened, and so, but clearly it seems to be God judged the world, so this is where probably Satan fell, all that kind of thing, okay? So this is their view, all right? So Jeremiah 4, 22 to 28, see if you can pick out where these words are used. Um, hopefully you'll be able to catch them in, which version do you have, the NASB? Okay, I'm not sure which words they use, but see if you can pick them out, and I'll try to point them out, where we see tohu wabohu, the for, without form and void, and the context of this verse. So, Jeremiah 4, 22 to 28. Okay, so you see the context of judgment upon God's people. They're foolish. They've not obeyed his commands. And so it says there, I looked on the earth. Behold, it was without form and void. So there's our word, tobu, wabohu. You see even um, the heavens had no light. We see that mentioned in verse 2. There's darkness over the face of the deep. And so they would take this context. Well, here's God's talking about judgment and talking about making the earth desolate making it without form and void, you know, scattering the birds, you know, they're, they're fleeing, there's no man, there's no inhabitants, they're laid ruin. So all this language, they would say, see, this is this, uh, these words are used in this context. So in Genesis 1-2, they've got to be speaking of the same thing, okay? Let's look at another one, and we'll see a very similar thing, Isaiah 34, 8 through 12. Okay, so in that context, the words tobu and bohu are confusion. Okay, uh, he shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. So there's your words there. And so again, judgment language, God's going to bring vengeance um, against his people. They've disobeyed. And so you see this picture of I'm going to lay them bare. I'm going to ruin them. There's going to be desolation. There's going to be nothing um, I'm going to destroy it. Okay, one more verse. Isaiah 24, 1. Okay, so empty. The earth will 
empty the earth and make it desolate. Okay? So how would you respond? Let's say you're talking to someone who has this gap theory, and they point you to these verses. What might be a way that you respond when they say, well, see, these words are used in a judgment sense here in Jeremiah and Isaiah. They have to be referring to that in Genesis 1-2. What might be a response you could think of? Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the key always, we talked about this with interpretation, context is key. Okay? Now, if there was another verse there that talked about judgment or talked about, you know, those, that gap that they have, if it filled in some of the details, then absolutely we would say, well, based on the context, this is, a, this is judgment language. And while those words are used in a judgment sense elsewhere, that doesn't necessarily mean that's how they're used in Genesis 1-2. In fact, what I would argue is what you're seeing in that language of Jeremiah and Isaiah is really God using almost de-creative, de-creation language, right? Look, I've created everything, I've inhabited it, but if you're not going to obey, I'm going to wipe it out, we're going to start back over, basically. Okay? It's almost a de-creation language, and although it has the picture of judgment in the context of Jeremiah and Isaiah, clearly because of his people's sin, and God's clearly calling that to judgment, we don't see that. You're really reading into the text in verse 2 to try to cram that in, okay? Um, another primary passage they will point to uh, is Isaiah forty-five eighteen. Who had that one? Isaiah forty-five eighteen. Okay, so he, he established it. He did not create it, you said, in vain or empty, but created it. He formed it to be inhabited. They would point to this verse and say, see, this is clearly saying that God did not create the earth empty and desolate and without uh, inhabitants. He created the earth to be inhabited. And so what we see in verse 2 can't be God's creation because he created it to be inhabited. What might you say to an argument like that? Yeah, right, and that's what you point to. Well, look, clearly this was not the finishing point. Clearly this is just part of the process, and so, of course, God, this isn't a contradiction to our viewpoint. Yes, God created it to be inhabited, and that's why he, we see later on uh, he's creating birds and fish and land animals and humans, right? He's creating those, and he's filling it, Okay. So these words tohu and bohu simply refer to the fact that God uh, began the creative week. He began by speaking time, space, and matter into existence. And at first, it was shapeless and uninhabited. So when he first starts, there's shapelessness, there's formlessness, there's no, no inhabitants. But what do we see in the following chapters? Days 1, 2, and 3, God is shaping, God is basically creating the dominion, light, uh, the separating the waters from the heavens and the waters below, creating the land and the water. He's creating the domains. He's shaping them, we could say. And then day four, five, and six, what's he doing? Filling them, inhabiting them, okay? Uh, he's giving domain to the sun and the 
moon, and the stars over the light. So he's created that domain of light and darkness. And now the sun, moon, and stars, as he says there, are going to rule over it, right? The sun's going to rule over it by day and the moon by night. So created dominion, now someone to... Can somebody turn me down just a tad? I keep hearing a reverberation. Thank you. Huh? So he's creating a domain, and then he's giving dominion to the creatures, to humankind, of course, over the creatures and over the land, okay? So we see that shaping and inhabiting, but in the original part, he, he's, it's shapeless, it's without that, okay? I like this quote from uh, Umberto Casuto. He says, just as the potter, when he wishes to fashion a beautiful vessel, takes first of all a lump of clay and places it upon his will in order to mold it according to his wish, so the creator first prepared for himself the raw material with a view to giving it afterwards order and life. It is this terrestrial state that is called tohu and bohu. So God is, in essence, speaking into existence, time, space, and matter. And then what we see in the remaining portion is he's taking that matter and he's shaping it or he's creating uh, sun, moon, stars. He's creating life from that, okay? Any questions before we move on from that passage? The earth was without form and void. Questions or comments? All right, let's keep moving. The next phrase, and darkness was, okay? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was, okay? Another argument made by gap theorists is that, well, Scripture clearly teaches that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And so, clearly, God could not have just created the darkness. He would not have created the world or the universe in a state of darkness because He's a God of light, and so they would point to this picture of darkness as evil and light as holiness as good. And they would say, this can't be God's intended creation. This has to signify that sin has come on the scene and that's why there's darkness. Okay, um, But, as we're going to see in these verses, Scripture is very clear that God did indeed create darkness. Psalm 104, 19-24. Who had that one? Psalm 104, 19-24. Okay, and then Isaiah 45, 7. I think so, Isaiah 45, 7. Okay, so clearly these verses are saying, God is saying, I make darkness, right? So there's no contradiction between God's nature and him creating darkness and creating this state of darkness in the beginning, and then eventually, as we're going to see, creating light and separating light from darkness, okay? Uh, Henry Morse says, The physical universe, though created, was as yet neither formed nor energized, and light is a form of energy. The absence of physical light means darkness, just as the absence of form and inhabitants means a universe in elemental form, not yet completed. No evil is implied in either case, merely incompleteness, Okay? So clearly this is not, we're, we're, again, reading into the verse our presupposition if we're trying to fit 
judgment fit. Okay, well, darkness must be referring to evil, and it's not what God intended. No, it's just speaking this verse of incompleteness. God's created. He's created the heavens and the earth, but they're in a state of incompleteness. And what do we see? Him completing the work of creation in day seven, resting because the work is completed. Okay? Any questions about that phrase? Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's the thing. You see that motif of light and darkness in the sense of it's a it's a picture, it's a symbolic thing of light and darkness, not always saying light is always good and darkness is always evil. It's just using that picture, using that illustration for us to understand. But it doesn't necessarily mean well anytime we see darkness in scripture, there's sin and there's this involved. We have to read the context, right? Context is always key, okay? All right, the next phrase is, okay, so we see uh, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And then it mentions at the end it was over the face, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So let's take that phrase, over the face of the deep and over the face of the waters. Really, they're referring to the same thing as we're going to see the word face uh, in reference to the deep and to the waters is the Hebrew word panim and means presence. Okay, so it's Spirit of God is hovering over the presence. Darkness is over the presence of the deep, but the Spirit is hovering over the presence of the waters. Okay, the word deep is the Hebrew word tahom, and in other places in the Old Testament refers to the waters of the ocean. Okay, so face of the deep, face of the waters are really a synonymous phrase. It's sort of a parallelism we've talked about before. So face of the deep, without saying it the same exact way, face of the waters. The deep is in reference, other times in Old Testament, of the oceans, of the deep, the depths of the ocean. So what we see here is this picture of the earth is without form and void. It's really kind of this watery ball. There's, there is matter, there is land, but it's just kind of an unorganized ball of matter, okay? And so we see here there's darkness over the face, over the presence of the deep, and over the waters. Um, and I really like this passage in Proverbs 8 it, uh, that I gave to Dan. Proverbs 8, 22 to 31. It talks about, uh, it personifies wisdom, okay? So as you're reading this, read it from the perspective of this is wisdom personified speaking, okay? So Dan, if you'll read that, Proverbs 8, 22 to 31. So here we see this wisdom speaking. God possessed me prior to any 
of creation, and then it lays out this account of before there was oceans, before there were mountains, before God did all these things, I was there. And the one phrase I wanted us to see there, and it was interesting, what, what uh, version is that, Dan? NIV, okay. So I'm sure we probably have some different translations with that word. But I think yours said, when he established the heavens, I was there. And then it said something about laying out the horizon. That was an interesting. Um, does anybody, I don't know what verse that is specifically, because I just have the paragraph here. Does anybody have a different translation about God? when he established the heavens, I was there. Mine says when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Do we have any other words? Proverbs 8. Yeah, I guess you guys aren't turned there. Turn there real quick because I want to see what some other translations say. Okay, circuit. A compass, yep. Right, compass is... Okay, drew the horizon on the ocean, okay. The idea really is, I think, that God's shaping God, um, almost creating the earth to be a sphere, this circle, this compass is the picture, and even the horizon we could talk about, um, God's doing that, okay, so he's over the face of the deep, over the waters, is kind of this shapeless form, but the spirit of God is hovering, and so I like this note from Henry Morse, the fact that this compass, as the King James translates, translates it, had to be set on the face of the deep, shows that the face of the deep originally had no such sphericity, it was formless, exactly as uh, intimated in Genesis 1-2. Elements of matter and molecules of water were present, but not yet energized. The force of gravity was not yet functioning to draw such particles together into a coherent mass with a definite form. Neither were the electromagnetic forces yet in operation, and everything was in darkness. The physical universe had come into existence, but everything was still dark. No form, no motion, no light. Okay, So he almost envisions it as just this probably floating matter and not a solid form, not in a, not the force of gravity holding it together, but then God's creating this sphere, as we see in Proverbs 8, laying the horizons, creating that form, okay? I, yes, I'll get there. Yeah, wisdom. No, this is wisdom personified, yep. So if we go back to the start, does not wisdom call, does not understand, raise her voice. On the heights beside the way of the crossroads, she takes her stand beside the gate. So the I, and when it talks about he, it is talking about God, before God created everything. So the I is, this is like wisdom has written this proverb, and the reference to he is, is God, yep. So we see some, some neat things there. Okay, last phrase here is, and the Spirit of God was hovering. Okay, the word spirit is rock and means, it can also mean breath or wind. We've talked about that. We see that even in John 3 in the Greek, the same word, I think pneuma means breath or wind, but we see it clearly here. This is referring to a person, not just some force of breath or wind. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the water. So it's, again, a point to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The word hub for hovering is rakaf and can mean move, shake, or flutter, okay? Move, shake, or flutter. 
Um, Kent Hughes says this about it, and it's used elsewhere in scripture, uh, of a picture of a bird hovering or fluttering above its young. And so I like this note from Kent Hughes. However, above the primeval chaos floated unutterable beauty, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The verbal picture comes clear in the final psalm of Moses, where he uses the same word to describe an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young. That's Deuteronomy 32.11. We have seen it when a bird suspends itself stationary in the sky by fluttering its wings. The Spirit of God fluttered like a nurturing bird over the dark in preparation for day one. So it's kind of a picture of this bird hovering or floating above the surface of the deep, preparing to continue the work of creation. Okay, so the Spirit of God's moving over the face of the shapeless, uninhabited matter of the watery material of the earth to shape it. And I, I, I want to read this by Henry Morris. It's a little lengthy, but I love how he brings the science of it into perspective as well. He says, in modern scientific terminology, the best translation would probably, probably be vibrated. If the universe is to be energized, there must be an energizer. If it is to be set in motion, there must be a prime mover. It is significant that the transmission of energy in the operations of the cosmos is in the form of waves, light waves, heat waves, sound waves, and so forth. In fact, except for the nuclear forces which are involved in the structure of matter itself, there are only two fundamental types of forces that operate on matter, the gravitational forces and the forces of the electromagnetic spectrum. All are associated with fields of activity and with transmission by wave motion. Waves are typically rapid back and forth movements and they are normally produced by the vibratory motion of a wave generator of some kind. Energy cannot create itself. It is most appropriate that the first impartation of energy to the universe is described as the vibrating movement of the Spirit of God himself. As the outflowing energy from God's omnipresent Spirit began to flow outward and to permeate the cosmos, gravitational forces were activated and water and earth particles came together to form a great sphere moving through space. So kind of an interesting take on maybe this is the Spirit of God creating, setting into motion light waves and energy waves and things like that, um, gravitational forces. Yeah? Yeah. What did you say? Said the physics teacher, yeah. But this is an interesting thing. Here's God... Regardless of what specifically has happened, we see God continuing to create um, and, and shape and inhabit, as we're going to see in the further days of creation, okay? It's, it's worth noting as well, I found this really, really interesting, this idea of the Holy Spirit moving upon the face of the deep is the same phraseology used to the Spirit moving on the authors of Scripture, inspiring them to write God's Word. So, uh, of course, we see that in, uh, what is it, First Peter, Second Peter, where it talks about Holy men didn't speak of their own, but the Spirit of God moved upon them. That same word in Greek, uh, in the Greek Septuagint, which is a translation of the Hebrew, uses the same word here in Genesis 1-2 of, of the Spirit moving. So it's just that same activity of the Spirit and creation as, as it is to him inspiring his word. I thought that was pretty interesting. So if we, as we walk through this passage, I've, I hope I've sought to explain a little bit of a difference between what I believe is the proper interpretation, because we're letting the text speak for itself. We're not trying to read into it, cram our ideas into it, twist words to make it say what we want. We're just letting the, speak, the text speak for itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth being without form and void, 
shapeless, uh, uninhabited, darkness over the face of the deep, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. If we were to read that, as we think about Moses communicating to the people uh, of God in, in this time frame when it was written, we would never think, just reading that, that verse 1, billions of years, verse 2, okay? It's a huge stretch, and we don't see any uh, mention of this in the rest of Scripture of, well, there was this time when Satan fell, and billions of years happened, and all these animals died, and all this happened, and there was a cataclysm, and then God started over. We don't find this anywhere in Scripture, so we're really reading into Scripture instead of letting Scripture speak to us, okay? Another reason I reject the gap theory, uh, and this is what uh, Henry Morris says as well, is because it's really scientifically uh, improbable or impossible. The gap theory does not accommodate the geological ages as it purports to do, since the system of geolog geological ages is based completely on the assumption of uniformitarianism, the belief that physical processes have always functioned in the past essentially as they do at the present. Let me summarize what he says here because we're running out of time. But essentially, they try to say, well, there's this huge cataclysm that happened. Well, if there's a huge cataclysm upon the earth and everything's stripped bare, then you wouldn't have those geological, uh, that record and those fossil records. They would be obliterated, right? If really a cataclysmic event happened, you wouldn't have that record laid out as they suppose happened over billions of years. So scientifically, it doesn't make sense. There's no geologist that says, well, I'm a gap theorist because of what I see in geology. It's just a way to try to cram that idea into Scripture, okay? Um, another is because thinking that God would create the world and then allow billions of years of chaos, death, and evolution and then recreate things and make man seems outside of his character. Why would God create everything, let things continue on for billions of years of death, of you know, survival of the fittest, evolution. Why would God in his good nature do that? And I don't have time to read this quote from James Montgomery Voice, but he basically says it seems to be outside of his character, okay? But here's the, what we could say, the, the kill shot to this theory and to any theory uh, trying to cram evolution into Scripture, okay? And we'll talk about it next week or two weeks from now as well. It's that to have this viewpoint, you have to believe there was death before the fall. Romans 5.12 clearly says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So clearly Romans says sin came through Adam and death because of Adam's sin. 1 Corinthians 15.21-22 For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So here... We see very clearly, Scripture teaches that death came as a result of Adam's sin directly. And yet, if you hold this viewpoint and others that seek to cram evolution into Scripture, what you're saying is those verses aren't true. That death didn't come because of Adam, because of his sin. Death actually existed before. So then you have to ask the question, well, if death's not the result of Adam's sin, then what is? And if death's not the result of sin, then why do we really even need a Savior, right? So... You can see this trickle-down effect. We've talked about it. If you put cracks in the foundation of God's Word, it can eventually affect a gospel perspective, right? Now, that's not to say that people that have a gap theory view or day-age theories we'll talk about in a couple weeks, whatever it may be, aren't believers. But again, it's a, a foundation that can easily crumble, okay? So I want to share that. But we are out of time, so let's pray.
If you have questions, let me know. You can write on a connection card even. Um, we'll pick up in two weeks. Again, next week, Church of the Park, so we won't meet, but we'll meet in a couple weeks and try to tackle more than one verse. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, just your creativity we see here in your power. And we pray today, we thank you that today we get to worship you, that you're not a God who created and then stepped away. God, you are a personal God who wants to have a relationship with us that uh, not only created us, but has redeemed us from sin. And so, God, may we worship you in spirit and truth today, and we pray that you be glorified in our midst. In Christ's name, amen.